welcome to the MathEd Podcast. I'm Daryl Ernest from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I'm your guest host for this episode. I'm also a board member for SIGRME, or the AERA Special Interest Group for Research in Mathematics Education. As a part of our special interest group, we have two different awards that recognize scholars in the field, one of which is the Distinguished Scholar Award, which was first awarded back in 2006. The Distinguished Scholar Award recognizes and celebrates the programmatic research of a scholar within the field of math ed. This year, the Distinguished Scholar Award was presented to Dr. Judith N. Moscovich of the University of California, Santa Cruz. We share in this episode Judith's remarks as she accepted the award. Judith's program of work has had a significant impact on the field and has also inspired new generations of scholars through her thoughtful and theoretically grounded contributions to the field that fundamentally value who children are and the rich and varied resources they bring to the classroom. We'll now share Judith's talk from April 6, 2019 at the SIG RME business meeting in Toronto. Thanks to Sarah Lubienski for recording Judith's talk and to the MathEd podcast for making this available to the field. Here are Judith's remarks, entitled, Integrating Languages into Research on Mathematics Learning. When I was asked to do the talk, I was a little stuck, because I typically, um, if you've been to my talks, uh, if you haven't been, I promise you, I usually um, show a video clip. I ask you to talk to the person next to you about what you see on the video clip, what you notice, what you don't notice. It's very interactive. But today, I thought I would do something a little bit different. Uh, So then I thought, what am I going to do? So the first thing I did was talk to my uh, doctoral students. And they said, well, you know, we don't really know what it is that you've been doing all along. We just know you, like, from little clips. Why don't you, like, tell us, imagine you're telling us or other early career people how you see your own trajectory. Um, And I said, okay, I can do that. I'm like, okay, you get to show a video clip. And um, so I'm just letting you know ahead of time. So my plan is to give you sort of an intellectual biography um, and give you an overview of the work, mostly because I have some uh, thoughts about how to have a productive, challenging, and I want to say also joyful um, career, and how not to think that you have to do everything. Uh, And in particular, one of the points that I've just been thinking about since going to NCTM is in doing work that addresses social justice and issues of equity, it has really been central for me to be interdisciplinary. And that does mean sometimes doing more work, but I want to make sure that I show you some, just tell my story of how I did interdisciplinary work in a way that I think was both challenging but also really joyful. I'm not saying I have to do what I did, but at least we'll have more stories. So this is going to be different for me. But before I start, I have to express my gratitude because the first thing everybody needs to know is nobody, and certainly I didn't get here alone. In, you know, in doing interdisciplinary work, it takes a lot, a couple of different communities, so you'll see who these people are. So a lot of collective work went into getting me here. And I wrote things down so that I wouldn't forget anybody. So first of all, to the SIGRME community, thank you for this award, and also for the hard work I know that you do for the SIG. Um, and for the community that you provide all of us, but especially the newcomers. I've been, and this is one of my most important professional communities, and I actually look forward to coming to the business meeting every year. I know it goes up and down in terms of what happens here and all, but it's just a place where I really feel um, at home and like I belong here. 
And um, given who I am, that's a really great accomplishment. Also, it's been an amazing, I'm going to keep saying this, it's been an amazing journey watching the SIG and our field grow and change over the years. I was SIG chair in 2004 to 2006, which was 15 years ago. Um, and I went out to dinner, and it was me and four, you know, seven of the nicest guys. <laughs> and I just, I, you know, they were like my favorite guys were going out to dinner. And I turned to them and I said, you guys, I have a secret to reveal. And I said, well, it's not that I'm a woman, because I know you know that, but I was a physics major. <laughs> I took a lot of math courses, but I was a physics major. It turned out that there were other physics majors going around, and there were actually some people who were not even STEM majors. So um, I've been around for a while. So to start, I want to thank my mentors, um, Alan Schoenfeld, Betsy Brenner, who's here, and also, I know she's a great reviewer because she was on my dissertation committee, and she's now on the dissertation committee uh, for one of my students, and they keep saying, wow, she is such a great reviewer, so I know this. David Pym, who actually at one ARA came up to me and said, you know that paper? Maybe we should put it in for the learning of mathematics. Between that time and when the paper actually showed up, he worked with me a lot to make that paper be what it was uh, when it was published. Um, Elise Foreman, who also served on several of my um, NSF uh, advisory boards, and again, her work has been incredibly um, insightful, and in, um, Beth Warren and Ann Rosebury, who I know are in science education, but I could not do the work that I do without having worked with them, because they work with what was... The label then was language minority students. I'll talk a little bit about how the labels have changed. To my collaborators, co-authors, co-editors, and people who've edited me in math education, long list of Ramar Kavi, who was at Berkeley, Jack Smith, who was also at Berkeley. Who, wherever you are, if you're a graduate student, look to the people who are a year or two ahead of you, because they will translate. Alan would say stuff, and then Jack and Avram would turn and say, this is what you mean, this is what you need to do. So really pay attention, and again, they were incredible colleagues um, to have. They really took good care of me. Shelley Goldman, who um, I worked with at um, Institute for Research on Learning. Um, Marta Civil, who is a co-PI in Samela, Hetty uh, Satati, who I've co-written with, Richard Barwell, um, David Wagner, Beth Herbal Eisenman, Sandra Crespo, and I can continue and go on. However, I'm going to give a big collective, a special thank you to all the Samela PIs, fellows, and friends, as well. Yay, big shout out. Um, as well as Dime Fellows. These people provided a particular, Semela is the Center for Math Education of Latinos and Latinas, and Dime was the Diversity in Math Education. Those people started to, again, provide a community for me that I had been hungering for um, and really made a difference. Uh, also, uh, just a lot of work, but really made a difference. And also a special thank you to people who are not likely to be here, the colleagues in sociolinguistics, literacy, bilingualism, and um, second language acquisition, who over the years have let me learn from them and be a legitimate peripheral participant. Uh, Kathy O'Connor was a postdoc at Berkeley when I was writing the last uh, chapter of my dissertation. And I says, she says, oh, so you want to look at language. Well, what do you think you mean by language? And it's been a long journey since then. Um, Guadalupe Valdez, Cindy Pizalres, Penny Eckert, who was also at Institute for Research on Learning, and my current um, colleague, George Bunch.
and to my students, the undergraduate math majors who continue to inspire me as they learn that there's this thing called research in math education. They never knew about that, right? They just thought you just learn math or you teach math. But oh, and there's actually an undergraduate, somebody who was an undergraduate in one of my classes here. So yes. To my doctoral students who continue to both challenge and support my theorizing, no matter how tired or overworked I feel, my research group meeting is the best part of my week. And last but not least, to my spouse, Kathy, who's put up with too many weekends of me at the computer and still manages to laugh at the phrase, conceptual change is hard for human beings. Now, it's a private joke because I taught a class of... 300 undergraduates cognition and instruction. And I kept saying that I was talking about conceptual change, right? And I thought I was teaching them about conceptual change. On the final exams, what they wrote was, what did they get from this class? Change is hard for the human being. Which my partner knows that change is hard for me. <laughs> so this is, a, again, a private joke, but over the years, she still laughs at that. And uh, Kathy was there when my first article in Journal of the Learning Sciences came out. And 23 years later, she's still here with me and here tonight. And also to my parents, who are no longer alive. But I want to say a little bit about them because they really inform who I am. And I just want to thank them. They were first-generation high school attenders in their families. And they supported my studying physics and then getting a PhD in math education, even though they had no idea what either of those two were about. I still remember my mother turning to me and asking in Spanish, in that tone, uh, what was it exactly that you did for your dissertation? Um, I remember the moment when it was like, huh. So I know they would have been proud of me today, and they might have enjoyed this more than perhaps, I think, the, my first memory of an early recognition, of academic recognition, was around the fourth grade in Buenos Aires, Argentina, it consisted, I don't know if it was an award, a reward, or a, you'll, you'll see in a minute what it was, of standing by the Argentine flag in uh, between two granaderos, grenadiers, with the Argentine flag. I know Patricio Hurst has an image of what this looks like. For several hours, I know they were proud of me, but I do think they would have enjoyed this better. So um, keep that in mind when you think that the SIG can be boring. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about today is um, integrating, and I, I have the language languages on purpose, and you'll see why. Integrating language into research on learning mathematics. First, I'll say a little bit about why we might want to do that, and then I'll go into stories about how I did that. I'll uh, go over some themes in my work and the stories about a few publications. Again, my goal is to describe how I did interdisciplinary work so that you don't have to think that you have to be like doing five disciplines. That's not possible, I don't think, so don't try to do that. Um, I also want to make just a little note that I've been around for a really long time, so if you see things that, that say Latino, Latina, I know it's Latinx now. I just haven't changed all those. Also, I've been through enough changes that we used to, language minority was one label, LEP, limited English proficiency, English learners. I now would use the term emergent bilingual, but I still fall into those, um, those old labels. So this integration was important, I think, first of all, for theory. 
in order to provide a full account of mathematical thinking and learning that includes language. Also, to um, think about how research with bilingual learners provides a window on the role of language. There's a way that when we have monolingual situations, the language becomes invisible. So I think of bilingual learners as a gift because they help us to think about language. The last reason and why I continue to focus on mathematics and not on other content, not only because I like it and because I think it's important, but because it's a discipline associated with power, authority, and privilege. And I'm going to use a quote from Evelyn Fox Keller, who was actually also on my dissertation committee. She says that mathematics and the physical sciences are the epistemic apex of power. A lot of P's in there, I like that. But also just, she says it so succinctly. I came to this work um, not only because of um, theoretical reasons, but also because of personal, political, and ethical reasons. Um, many of you know, because I, I think, well, some people say that not like three minutes go by before I let people know that I'm not from here. I do that partly because I don't have an accent. And typically what I hear is you don't have an accent and all kinds of misunderstandings about me are created from that. So most of you know that um, I'm an immigrant from Argentina. I immigrated when um, I was 14. Spanish is my first language and yes, I'm fluent in it. Again, most people don't realize that until I get on the phone and start talking to somebody and it just comes right again out of my mouth, which no problem. And so I currently continue to participate in the bilingual community. Um, I do want to mention that in more recent years, I have thought about uh, the fact that I may be so attached to not losing heritage languages because there's already been a language lost in my family. It was the Yiddish that my grandparents spoke. Um, they were immigrants to Argentina. The other reason that this integration is important is for practice. Again, to support mathematics learning for all students, including, and it's not just English or bilinguals, multilingual immigrant, poor students of color, anybody who's struggling or thinking, let me take that word back, this is, we're, we're going through a, <laughs> um, changing the language that I'm using. Um, again, uh, anybody who hasn't been paid attention to or the, the way I like to think about it is students from communities with a history of lack of opportunities to learn. So you see that I still have to work on my own language. You just watch me do it, even after all these years of writing about that. So don't feel bad if you do it. Just laugh, know that we're going to get there. Um, and it's just, yeah, this is fascinating to have to talk. <laughs> What comes out of the mouth does not necessarily go through the filters of the mind. So I mentioned that I was a physics major. I prepared for this work through um, being a physics major, taking a lot of math. I taught college-level math at San Francisco State University. What I don't always mention is that I was a feminist, um, anti-imperialist, and anti-racism activist for 10 years in San Francisco. That's a subtext in my work that... I also think I need people to know that I didn't just learn to do that stuff on my own. I worked with some amazing people um, back in San Francisco in, in um, those years. Um, so I arrived at UC Berkeley and I said, you know, I don't know what these people are doing, but I want to learn how to do something of what they're doing. I worked with Alan Schoenfeld, but I went to talk to Guadalupe Valdez and I said, Guadalupe, I'd like to look at uh, bilingual learners. And she may or may not remember telling me this, but I tell this story so often that I've come to believe it. She said, go do the math first. 
And she was right. I worked on the math education part first, and the last chapter of my dissertation, I said I want to start looking at language. Not necessarily two languages, but just language in general to start there first. Then I did postdoctoral work at Institute for Research on Learning and at Turk, again, uh, where I worked with Anne Rosebery and uh, Beth Warren. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about how the interdisciplinary conversations and um, what I call hanging out uh, with people who do work in other areas. So going way back, these are some of the early themes in my research, student conceptions. I started out looking really closely at how students understand linear functions and the connections between equations like y equals 2x plus 6 and the graph of that equation. Um, I was especially interested in how having a discussion with a peer supported learning about equations and lines. And that led me to thinking about the math register and mathematical discourse. So I also worked with bilingual students, and this led me to exploring the role of language in learning mathematics and documenting how bilingual students um, communicate mathematically. Overall, just to give you an idea of, I do really think about research design. I learned a lot of that from Betsy. We uh, wrote a paper, a chapter, uh, where we describe a naturalistic paradigm, and I can tell you where to go read about that. It's right in that chapter. Typically, the cycle that I would do is I'd go into a classroom and have a cycle of uh, going and collecting short and long-term classroom observations, at least six to eight weeks, at least a curricular unit, videotaping whole class and small groups, and collaborating with the teacher, but again, watching what they were doing. Then I would do what I call peer discussion sessions, where pairs of students would do written work, discussion, and video. And here's the piece that came uh, from some of the work that uh, Betsy and Jean Legg did in Liberia. I, at least that's where I learned about it. Creating what uh, are called ecologically valid tasks, but not in the workplace, but in school. Um, I took problems that targeted students' conceptions that I had documented in the classroom and then had them uh, videotape while they were working in pairs. The settings included urban mainstream language minority students in the ninth grade, math discourse and learning math in two languages. I worked in urban middle school classrooms with, there you see, Latino, Latina, Latinx, eighth grade. And I borrowed one fourth grade lesson because it was so interesting I had to look at it. It's the only time I haven't done uh, sort of ethnographic methods as well as looking at the, at the lesson using discourse analysis. The participants were from many different backgrounds. I've been um, lucky enough to be able to work on both coasts and in the middle. Uh, recent immigrants, second generation, some of them were monolingual, bilingual, English dominant, Spanish dominant. And that's why I like to show video clips of them because I really have to thank them as well. The clips, really, of the kids that I've been taking with me for so many years, they travel with me everywhere, and I really do the work for them, so I have to remember to thank them as well. The research, I always tell my students, so what's your research question? What is it that you, and here's, here are the research questions that continue to bug me, bother me, I still want to know about these. What conceptions do students use during peer discussions of representations of linear functions? How are these conceptions situated in material, social, and linguistic resources available to the students? And do these conceptions change and how? So this is very early on. But I remember that, I think it was my first job interview, somebody in the back of the room, I think it was Bud Meehan, but it could have been somebody else at UC San Diego said, how do you define a conception? I said, oh, 
I better have a definition of a conception if I'm going to be talking about them. So following Smith, DeSessa, and Rochelle, I have that there. And I'll read it for you because I think it's important. It's an idea that's stable over time, the result of a constructive process, connected to other aspects of a student knowledge system, and robust when confronted with other conceptions. Now, back then I wrote that that was, I was looking at conceptions in use. Today, I would say in practice, and I'll talk a little bit about how that has been a change. For the second theme, looking at math discourse and practices, I modified, and I, borrowing is really, I mean, I have changed these questions so much, I don't even know that we'd recognize what Jim G had originally, but I'll let people who work <laughs> with that work let me know. So I liked, I, I just read a lot of his work, um, people were uh, telling me to read his work. So first, I would look at whether students are participating in mathematical discourse practices. I would look at what are the situated meanings of words and phrases. And then what resources do students use to communicate mathematically? What sign systems are relevant? In particular, I love this, how is stuff other than language relevant? That's a technical word, stuff, by the way. Uh, we really if we don't look at all of that stuff, we're missing something. There's a piece missing here, which is I realize now looking back, I do something else that sociolinguists do, which is look at when communication breaks down. Because again, the norms aren't visible until something happens and you say, what do you mean you went by twos? I went by fives. I have a paper about that that I really like. So the themes, again, for theme one, what I wanted, to, what I looked at uh, was how students were refining, not replacing conceptions, which back then was kind of a big idea. I'm looking at Jack, because we fought for that one. <laughs> um, I was looking at sense-making, negotiating, and how peers were collaborating. Language, of course, was an important aspect and a resource for conceptual change. And what I learned was that learning to speak mathematically involved more than learning to use technical terms like slip. I actually did what I think every good math teacher would have done, which is to um, introduce the kids to the words I was going to use, say, here's some examples, give me some examples. Yes, I've taken care of vocabulary, I'm done. And then they spent two hours negotiating what steeper and less steep meant. So that was the first thing I learned. Now I get into the stories part. So I'm just going to pick a couple of, of pieces and tell you stories about them so that you can kind of see what the trajectory looks like. So um, this is 1993, and I hope you can read the small print. Can you read the small print? So the small print says, this chapter was a collaborative effort. The order in which the authors are listed was determined by a random choice procedure. Math people. <laughs> so this was uh, with my former faculty advisor, Alan Schoenfeld, and Avram Markavi, who was a postdoc at the time. What I want to just tell you about this is that there was a lot of discussion about co-authorship, and we really felt that this was collaborative. I didn't know at the time how much I was being treated like a colleague. And I just want to bring that up and honor it. And also to say that discussions around co-authorship need to be had often, repeatedly, and really they need to be transparent. I had a really good experience. Um, actually, what happened was that Alan said, I'm an S, I always go last, I don't want to go alphabetically. Avram said, I'm an A, I always go first. I said, you guys, it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to think Alan wrote the paper because he's my advisor. <laughs> I said, no, let's do this right. So we did, I don't remember the actual order, but we did paper, scissors, stones, and then we drew straws. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. 
I really felt like I was part, really being treated like a colleague and part of that community. So then you might be wondering, yeah, you know, so my training was really cognitivist. I now can say that openly. <laughs> I, I, I will again say this though. Um, this was my MA paper. It represents, yay, I get to use a Vygotskyan framing. I really, really wanted to do that. I want to say that I felt like I walked on two legs. One was cognitivist and the other one was Vygotskyan. And I felt a little bit like Frankenstein doing that. I was not very graceful initially. But this was my first attempt to uh, walk that path a little bit more gracefully. I no longer worry about my cognitivist origins, I want to say. I still think that some cognitivists, I'm, I'm going to be provocative here, uh, are useful. I still do a task analysis. <laughs> it's just that now I do it from as many perspectives as I can. And I ask other people to do a task analysis as well. Um, and then I think about, so which ideas do I want to keep? So understanding and meaning are things that we started to talk about from a I want to keep those. I'm not going to throw them away. However, I'm not going to go down the road of wondering whether something is individual or collective when they're really both. So I'm not going to put things in opposition that I don't think belong in opposition. So I have the, the real story about this paper is that it took me 10 years to get it published. And here's the story. The first submission when I sent it out came back saying, we don't have reviewers who can review the Gottskin-based work. I know I'm that old. The second submission, I sent it to a Vygotskian journal, and guess what they said? They didn't even have reviewers who could review the math content. The third time I sent it out, I sent it to Educational Studies and Mathematics, where reviewers could do both. I didn't realize then at the time that it really makes uh, a big difference to pick the right journal. Um, also, I was persistent. I'm nothing if not persistent. And I'm also really glad the times changed. The things that we might think today we take for granted, people had to fight for. So um, those are the morals of that paper. And now I want to get to what is the, I think of as the bulk of my work. So this is where I want to talk about um, how my research draws on interdisciplinary approaches and methods, and particularly how to use concepts from outside math education, because we can't just borrow them without uh, paying respect and understanding the tradition that work comes from. Um, I'll give you an example of things that I, concept that I had to borrow from um, classroom discourse and bilingualism. Um, and I'm not saying that these are correct or the best concepts, but it was something to start grounding myself in. So the idea that there are national languages like Spanish or Haitian Creole and social languages like mathematical discourse. This will keep me out of the conversations when people say, oh, mathematics is a language. And I have great conversations with linguists who say, the definition of a language is a dialect that has an army. Again, a really different approach to just asserting that mathem you know, and mathematics is a language. I know this is, again, really provocative, but I thought I'd throw that out there. Now, I am bilingual myself. And I learned a lot about myself in reading about bilingualism. It was really, there were times actually when I cried because I didn't understand my own um, way of being and talking. Until, so it was really good. It was both personal, political, and really meaningful for me. 
I believe the, this name is pronounced Grosjean, and I shouldn't say that if I'm being taped and I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so she proposes that we not think of bilingual and monolingual as labels for people, but instead uh, as modes. So that right now I'm functioning in monolingual mode when I'm with people who, like Patricia, who we go back and forth and make jokes and translate and do or don't, I'm functioning in a bilingual mode. So I'm one person with one brain, one mind, actually. There were psycholinguists who were trying to prove that bilinguals had two different minds, which is not a good thing to feel like you have, right? <laughs> so in 2002, I went to a meeting that was at Northwestern University. Um, Carol Lee was there, Naila Nasir was there, Paul Cobb was there, and um, the special issue of mathematical thinking and learning came out of this. So go to meetings talk to people, things, amazing things come out of collaborating and going to meetings. What happened with this paper, again, this is what I remember, is that I had read a piece by Courtney Kazan that inspired me. Her piece was called The Gotsky, Himes, and Bakhtin, From Word to Utterance to Voice. And I was so struck by that paper that I said, huh, I wonder how I could look at language and math in a parallel way. I wonder, I didn't know that what I was doing was borrowing a rhetorical tool. I now know that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm watching somebody who's uh, my department chair, who I'm really um, happy is here, who's from literacy, because I really do learn from people outside of math education. I take those things to heart. And who, I mean, who doesn't learn something from Courtney Kasdan? <sighs> But there was more because Juan Guerra, who's a literacy and writing scholar now at University of Washington, reviewed me. And when I say reviewed me, like three or four times. He would say, not quite. You, got, you have to change that. And so this paper is a result of that. However, I also want to say, having had conversations with people in this room about what I say in that paper, um, this was my first attempt to understand the concept and use the concept of register which can be misunderstood if you read this piece. I know this <laughs> now. It doesn't mean that I misunderstood it, or maybe it does. Uh, I have developed in my own understanding. So see, conceptual change is also hard for me. Um, I think I was trying to do too much in this paper. I was also trying to shift from obstacles to resources, what we now would call from a deficit to an asset view of bilingual <laughs> learners. And I tackled those two issues together, which I think made the, art, made the argument less clear than it could have been. So next, having struggled with that, I separated them. And I said, okay, I want to counter the deficit views and simplistic conclusions about language and cognition. What, what are they? What do people imagine bilingual kids are doing? I know this always comes up. Well, adults, I know that you guys, and I do, we do our arithmetic in the language that we learned it in. Now I'm going to say some things that seem so obvious now, but they didn't seem obvious then. I went and looked at everything I could find where people had been looking at. So do people do that? Yes, adults do that. I still do my, all my arithmetic in Spanish, and then I translate it to English. Why, why memorize it twice, right? The problem is that people were making claims about how bilinguals then are therefore not good at math that were either slower or less accurate. And I have to tell you, I looked at it all and I looked at some of the stats that they did. I didn't find any conclusive evidence for issues with accuracy. The time difference was negligible, and this is what's really important to me. The time difference, if let's say you're doing um, arithmetic in your language and you're doing this with the interviewer, I'm going to say this and it's going to be so obvious. 
the time difference between monolinguals and bilinguals disappears if you don't have to translate your answer. <laughs> I know. To me, this was so obvious, but I have used that as a, a way to look at when I'm reviewing research. I did the same thing with some of the claims that people make about how early language, early number names lend themselves more or less to base 10. And I know this is also controversial, but it's who I am. If the interviewer uh, makes a point of saying this is about base 10, guess what? Kids who, uh, who use number names that are not as easily um, as transparent for base 10 do better. So once again, I always look to see, huh, if you can change something just by changing what the interviewer does, then it's clearly not related or not inherently about language. I did the same thing with the, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk too long, but gender differences in spatial and visual visualization, if, it, if you can change them in an hour, they're not genetic. <laughs> that was a long time ago, but I wish, right, that the Harvard president would have known that. <laughs> Now, now you see who I really am. <laughs> All right. The other situation was, oh, you know, I, I, I know that people use two languages when they're talking to each other or when they're talking to the teacher. We call that code switching. I know it's called translanguaging now. Um, and I completely agree, which I wrote a paper recently about shifting to that, thinking about it that way. So here's what would happen. People would say, well, bilinguals switch languages because they don't remember a word and don't know a concept. It turns out that code switching is a complex language practice. It's not an individual trait. It's absolutely not conscious. If you ask me, and I'm, eh, why did you just switch? Don't believe me. Because if you think about language, it doesn't work in this way. Oh, I am now going to pick that word in Spanish because. It works that way when you're monolingual. You just talk. You don't stop to think about which word you're gonna use. Now sometimes, yes, you know, might say, oh, what was that word, you know, and in Portuguese there's a particular word that I prefer to use, but that isn't what code switching or translanguaging is about. Bilingual switch depending on who we're talking to. Young kids as young as four know that they can speak Spanish to their grandmother, but not to other people, they like, get that. Uh, the domain, the topic, the role, the function. I have to tell you that function for sociolinguistics is a completely different thing than functions for mathematics. But <laughs> yeah, I, it's taken me years to really understand um, the difference between, um, yeah. Let's see, so then um, another example of working across disciplines is the book that I edited. This was a result of a Spencer Foundation program officer saying, we need to know some stuff about uh, language and math education. They told us that you would be a good person to talk to, and here's some other people we'd like you to work with. So um, I drew on and connected work from outside math education in literacy, linguistics, and assessment. Mary Schleppergrill. Willie Solano Flores and Chris Gutierrez, who wrote a chapter with Tesha Singhukta Irving and Jack Dykeman. We reviewed each other's chapters. So again, we all were working together. And what came out of that book are a, a, a couple of, of um, principles for how to work with language and mathematics. First, to recognize the complexity of language, moving away from simplified views of language as vocabulary or grammar to embrace the multimodal and multi-semiotic nature of math activity, and I have to put uh, O'Halloran there, should have been cited. Um, I didn't make that phrase up. 
And also to shift from thinking of math discourse as being just one thing, just a monolithic view. There are multiple mathematical discourses. And also to shift from being having a dichotomized view of discourse practices as being either everyday or academic, because mostly in the math classroom, we speak a hybrid combination of the two. And Elise Foreman was one of the first people to point that out to us. To summarize that, if you think that language or languages or vocabulary, then math discourse is mainly words, vocabulary or grammar. If you think that, oh, there are these multiple meanings. Again, we did start there, the fact that set means something at home, it's at the table, and set means you know, something else in the math classroom. It's not a bad thing to know about, but then you'll think that multiple, you might think that multiple meanings are obstacles. And uh, if you think about language as participating in practices, then we would think that um, math discourse involves non-language resources and math practices as well. Uh, your perspective on bilingual learners is also informed by, if you think that it's mostly about vocabulary, then we think about um, bilingual learners as deficient in vocabulary proficiency compared to monolinguals. We have to keep in our memory two lexicons. That's another word for vocabulary then. Uh, and then if multiple meanings are the perspective, then bilingual learners face extra difficulties because we have to sort out multiple. I actually wrote about that myself. So I'm not blaming anybody else. This is something I thought about. But if we move to thinking of language as participating in practices, uh, then we think about bilingual learners as bringing competencies and resources. Some similar, some different from monolingual learners. You probably hear the echo of um, Gutierrez and Rogoff and repertoires of practice there. So you can see another influence there. So then I started to see that I'm kind of obsessed with practices. And this has been going on for a while. It's not new. It started uh, way back in 2004. Um, I had a paper again, into, and this is not just the Common Core ones, right? This is way, way before that. Um, so I wrote a paper, Issues Regarding the Concept of Mathematical Practices, to kind of tell the story of my own work around practices. I want to make sure that I bring up Sylvia Scribner's name, because that's the definition of practices I use. It's so brilliant, I have to go back to it. The culturally organized nature of significant literacy activities and I love this, their conceptual kinship to other culturally organized activities involving different technologies and symbol systems. So what I'm doing now, it's math in two languages plus math discourse plus math practices. Um, I wrote a paper called The Sociocultural Approach to Academic Literacy in Mathematics. It's my second attempt to coin um, a phrase. The first one was transitional conceptions and um, there are two people who took that up and, and wrote about it. <laughs> um, academic literacy and mathematics so that we don't just think about language but think about literacy. And uh, the point that I make in that paper is about integrating math proficiency practices and discourse. The idea is that they're intertwined that either when we're solving a word problem, for example, people have tried to say, read the problem, think about the text, then think about the mathematics. And in fact, we do everything together and it's intertwined so that we should, we don't separate them when we're actually doing the work and that we shouldn't separate them when we're analyzing um, activity for research, certainly not when we're designing instruction, designing tasks or uh, planning lessons. 
So um, what started out to be challenges, I want to say now, are joys. Recognizing the complexity of language, I've done that to avoid reductionist views. Working across disciplines to draw on interdisciplinary approaches and methods, I've done that to avoid reinventing wheels and because I think that's essential to paying attention to equity. Uh, focusing on students' mathematical ideas, math practices, and the potential for progress, I've done that to avoid deficit views. I wanted to say two last thoughts that I had actually at NCTM, and uh, so they may not be as well formed. Um, so why interdisciplinary and why pay attention to content? So I heard of our, the three great speakers, um, Deborah Ball, Catherine Chabal, and Naila Nasir, um, talk about one of the things that I heard them say was about doing interdisciplinary work. And I was worried uh, because in a way, as I said at the beginning, it is a little bit more work. You have to read outside, you have to talk to people. But what I thought was important to think about is that, I, again, I think that paying attention to equity and social justice will require drawing on other disciplines. But it doesn't require drawing on all of them. This is not something that um, and, you know, more junior people should think is something that you either have to do everything or that you should accomplish what it took other people to accomplish 20 or 30 years in your dissertation. That's always a good piece of advice. Uh, for me, it was linguistics, psycholinguistics or sociolinguistics, cultural psychology, uh, anthropology, I wish I could have in, in, uh, integrated it more, at least a naturalistic paradigm. And then the last thing I want to say is I continue to pay attention to the math content for several reasons. One is I like the math, but that's not enough. It's essential for equity work, at least some equity work, to attend to content, and I thought about it in two ways. Reclaiming and noticing student competencies, I think we still need to do that work both for research and with teachers. I also feel that if I'm working with um, teachers and students from non-dominant communities, I need to keep up on what's the best and most current research-based approaches to math instruction so that I can make sure those teachers and those kids have access to the best and the highest quality instruction in mathematics. So again, I'm, these are just thoughts I'm, I'm kind of looking at. Again, wh why did I make the decisions I made? I'm not saying anybody else should do what I've done. Um, but those were the two reasons I came up with uh, for myself and my own work. And now really in closing, so what about teaching? I have written papers about teaching, I just didn't talk about them. Perspectives on language and languages have implications for teaching. And in the bottom row there, um, if you think that language is vocabulary, the focus for instruction is to develop vocabulary. If you think that language is multiple meanings, then you develop awareness of multiple meanings. If instead you think about language as participating in practices, then we, on, we focus in instruction on uncovering student competencies and resources and building on them. And that's it, thank you.